All right, Matthew chapter 5. Good morning, everybody. Ooh, my camera is on. That was a lot. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be in verse 4 today, all of verse 4. Uh, if you are just joining us, uh, we are entering into culture shock um, as a congregation because we are working through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that began in chapter 5, verse 3. Um, in which Jesus is telling us and demonstrating for us what the values are, are the, of the kingdom of heaven. What are the values of the kingdom of heaven? What's the culture like? And the first thing we saw in verse 3 was that the people who are blessed are the people who are poor in spirit. Those are the people who live in the kingdom of heaven. Those are who are poor in spirit. So the word blessed came up and the word phrase poor in spirit came up. The word blessed in the context of the kingdom of heaven, means that you are approved by God and you're completely satisfied by that. Um, as opposed to what blessed means in this world, which means you are so- constantly seeking approval and consuming other things and other people in order to get that approval and hold on to it. Um, blessed means I'm approved by God, who He is and what He's done, and that I'm fully content and satisfied in that. That's what it means to be blessed. And the first culture, the first value, first part of the culture, the first value is that the people who are blessed in the kingdom of heaven are those who are poor in spirit. Um, Those people who are continually and consciously acknowledging their unworthiness before God then have great worth based on uh, the approval that God gives us in the work and person of Jesus Christ. So that's why those who are blessed are poor in spirit because they are then filled with the gospel. They're filled with who Jesus is and what he's done. That is contrary to the world. Uh, We are human. We are American. And we are Southerners. Okay? So we don't like anybody telling us that we need anything. Um, I don't know if that's, maybe that's just me, right? But we just don't like to see ourselves in need of anything or being... Uh, or being empty of self, being poor in spirit, is not something that just comes easily to us. It's not easy, but it is simple. It is simple. Okay. So what what we want Jesus to do in our earthly in our in the culture of this world, what we want Jesus to do, what we want God to do, is say, "You can do it, Rob. Try harder. Keep going. Uh, if you if you just uh, dig down, make more sacrifices, make different choices, you can you can do it." You don't have to be helpless. You, you, can, you in your own wealth of your own spirit can accomplish this and be a part of this kingdom. But that's not the way of the, the Bible. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not, you can't be a Christian that way, just to be blunt. You can't be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that way. Helplessness is not something we overcome. It is something that we embrace. Helplessness is the doorway to heaven. Okay. Um, um, the thing that you hate the most about yourself, which is your ineptitude. I just can't do it. Um, that's the thing you have to embrace because then Jesus, then you see that the beauty of the fact that Jesus did it for you. And you trust that. Okay, so that's the first, that's one value. Okay, we just crushed ourselves right there in the first one, right? If that domino falls, then the next one falls inevitably with it, right? If you enter into a state of the kingdom of heaven, into a state of being poor in spirit, then the next domino falls. There are certain inevitabilities associated with being poor in spirit. 
and they, they just come right out of it. And that's the next domino in the Sermon on the Mount. That's in verse 4. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, and we'll get started. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's where we're going to be today. Okay. So for a long time, let me set the stage here, for, for many, many years, uh, people who were terminally ill uh, were an embarrassment for, for the medical field. They were, uh, doctors were embarrassed at the fact that people faced terminal illness. So if you could not be cured, that was, to a doctor, that was proof of their fallibility. And, uh, and so as a result, doctors would not be engaged in the, in the life of anybody who was dying, who was terminally ill. Um, there's nothing more that can be done for them. Uh, I've got lots more on my time, the people that I could be helping. And so if you were in a state of terminal illness and your body was failing and you were passing, doctors would have nothing to do with you because it made them look inept. But there was a doctor in Switzerland named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she uh, took the exact opposite approach. She saw this as an opportunity, and so she spent a lot of time with lots of people who were dying. And she would comfort them, But she was also a scientist, and so she was also taking notes. She was also taking notes about what she was experiencing. And she ended up writing a book called On Death and Dying. And in that book, she includes a a cycle of emotional states that you have probably referred to, heard referred to as the grief cycle. It's the grief cycle. Sometimes it's listed in five stages. Sometimes it's listed in seven stages. But by and large, what she noticed is that when there is loss or when we're anticipating our own loss, we, we go through a cycle of emotional states. Now, it's not perfectly in order. Sometimes there's, uh, you jump from three back to two and then to five and then back to one. And then, you know, there's a little bit of uh, jumping around in the cycle. But by and large, if you stretch it out over time, we as human beings work through the grief cycle. And the first part of the grief cycle is denial or isolation. We tend to deny the loss that's taken place. Like this can't be happening. You, you, you're, 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 you're kidding. This is not happening to me right, right now. Um, and oftentimes people will withdraw from their usual social contacts. And that, this stage can last a few moments. It can last a few hours. It can last a little bit longer. But there is always denial. There is always some sense of isolation. There is often anger in stage two. Um, this, this, this person who's grieving in this way could be furious at the, um, at the person who's inflicted hurt or brought about the struggle. Um, they could be mad at the world that it's this way. You can be mad at yourself that this has taken place. There's, but there's anger and there's bargaining. If I do this, will you take this away? Uh, please, I'll do anything to avoid the consequences of this. Please don't let this happen. Then there's depression, there's numbness, there's some anger underneath, but there's sadness. And then eventually there is acceptance. Acceptance is when anger and sadness and mourning have started to taper a bit. This is where the person just acknowledges the reality of what's taken place and accepts it for what it is. Um. But it doesn't mean that there's not sadness. It doesn't mean that it's like, okay, I'm glad that's over. That's not, that's not acceptance. It's just this has happened and this is my new reality. Okay. So hopefully you're thinking of someone that you know or you're thinking about yourself 
who has experienced a traumatic event where they or you are, and you're somewhere in this cycle, okay? Um, and if you, if you think about this, this can provide a level of, um, uh, it, it can be, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it can be frustrating. It can be humbling because you could come to the conclusion that there's nothing unique about your pain, right? Because everybody's going through the cycle and it normalizes it across all of humanity. Does that mean there's nothing unique about your suffering? But it also could bring you a lot of like, the fact that it's normal, right, that other people have, that everybody goes through this, this can be really comforting because that means there's somebody you can talk to, somebody who can empathize, somebody who can sympathize, and, and it normalizes the way that you feel. But I want to I spend some time thinking about this word, this part of the, the, um, the cycle called acceptance. A person who is in the stage of acceptance has come to terms with their loss and they are never the same. They are never the same. There's still some sadness, there's still some grief, but there's an embrace of this reality that while this life won't be the same, it does continue, it does go forward. There, is, there are other things to look forward to, other people to engage with, other things to experience. In other words, there, it's, it's grief that has become good. Okay? It's grief that has become good. It's acceptance. And I think that it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it helps me deal with the fact of verse 4 in chapter 5. This idea of good grief. This notion of always living with a sense of loss. Okay? And in context, what we've lost is our self. We're poor in spirit. We are not rich in our own spirit. We are poor in spirit. There's loss associated with this, which is why Jesus says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If blessed are the poor in spirit isn't enough of a paradox for you, then blessed are those who mourn really should cinch it. Okay? The, the paradox between uh, the paradox that we live in the kingdom of God is, is, is just right here, okay? John Stott said that we should, we should translate this verse, happy are the unhappy. <laughs> happy are the unhappy in order to kind of get that paradox. And that's a really, that's a really fair question because, so, so what kind of mourning? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. How many of us associate mourning with blessing? None of us. Of course you do, Luke. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will, be, they will be comforted. Okay. So what kind of mourning is a blessing? What kind of grief is good? Okay. So the kind of mourning that is a blessing is not the kind associated with the loss of a loved one or some sort of specific tragedy. But the kind of mourning that is a blessing is the kind associated with the loss of yourself. To be poor in spirit is to lose the self. It is to lose our self-righteousness. It is to lose self-respect. It is to lose self-assurance. And on and on and on, I could go through the dictionary, right? And if you lose those things, that's something to grieve. That is something to grieve. Or to use a biblical term, Jesus is talking about the kind of mourning associated with repentance. Repentance, right? 
Mourning is the inevitable necessity of being poor in spirit. There's, there's no being poor in spirit and not being mournful. John Stott says it's one thing to acknowledge our spiritual poverty before God. It is another thing to mourn it. It's another thing. It's contrition. Poor in spirit is confession. <clears throat> Mourning is contrition. If poor in spirit is the continual conscious acknowledgement of our unworthiness before God, being mournful is living in it for a little while. Okay? Feeling it. And this has several implications for us as Christ followers, and that's what we're going to talk about. Okay? What is it that we're actually mourning? What does that look like? What impact does this have on us in our mission as the kingdom of God? That's, that's what we're going to look at. So if you look at the Bible, so okay, what, what are we mourning? Blessed are those who mourn. What do you mean? What are we, what are we mourning? Okay? If you look in the Bible uh, and you consider your own life in light of the, a lot of the Bible, there, there are two categories of things that we mourn. The first is our own sin. There is seemingly no end to the number of people in the Bible who model or speak to the state of contrition of the Lord's people who, um, because of the, with, with um, evidence of their own personal junk in their lives. I mean, the, the Old Testament and the Psalms are basically diaries of people's sin. <laughs> so David wrote in Psalm 51.3, I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Uh, Ezra heard of the sin of the Jews taking place while they were attempting to rebuild the temple. You can read about this in, in, in Ezra chapter, chapter 9. And when Ezra, who was not part of the people who brought on the sin, that brought on uh, the, uh, the exile, but when, he, when, he, when they were trying to rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem and he witnessed and, heard, and got word of some specific types of sin that were taking place in the people already. I mean, they haven't even started laying the foundation of the temple yet. Um, and already he heard. His response was this. He said, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. He's mourning. Apostle Paul when he, when he got to the end of chapter 7 and he started thinking about the weight of, of, of sin associated with this covetousness and all the things that came out of that, he says at the end of chapter 7, What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Right. So there's just three examples of people who were all who Every single chapter is about the Old Testament. And you could pull out and see that people have this realization of their sin and they mourn it. There's, there's contrition. There's living in it just for a little while. And if it, it, we need to do that. We need to, in the, in the light of God's holiness, recognize our lack of holiness and live very specifically in the reality of that. There, there's time for that. There's, it's inevitable to live poor in spirit is to live a mournful life in that regard. But not just your sin the, sin, the sin of other people, the sin of the culture, right? So when Jesus is walking uh, in John 11, he's walking to, to Lazarus' tomb. Jesus, he, there's this moment where it just stops and, and, the, and it says Jesus wept. You know, he saw this horrid, ugly, foul, uh, you know, 
what's the word I'm looking for? That, 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 that sin had caused death and sadness all around him, and he wept at the unbelief of those around him. Uh, it, 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 so Jesus wept for that reason. He mourned not his own sin because he had none, but he mourned the sin and the state of the culture and the world around him. When, when uh, Nehemiah uh, was, was uh, but prior to Ezra around the same time, right? When, when he was tasked with rebuilding the wall around the, the, um, around the city of Jerusalem that had been sacked and torn down, Nehemiah was, was the, uh, he was the cup the cupbearer to the king, he had not, also had not been born. He did not sin in any way directly that caused uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But when he saw the state of the sin around him, he, in Nehemiah chapter 2, he wept. He mourned the sin around him in the culture. In Philippians 3.18, Paul, talking about false teachers in the church, said this, I have often told you, and I now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul, when he, I mean, he planted the church, right? And he looked around at the state of false teaching in the church and its infiltration, and the fact that they would continue in it and continue in it and continue in it, it broke him to the point of tears. He is mourning the state of sin in the world, right? So it is it's really important. It's proper that Christians look around at the state of the world and we be broken and we be frustrated and we get hurt and we're disappointed and we have some sort of righteous indignation. Like there's something wrong with our Christian theology if we don't look around at the state of the world and, and feel sad. Right? Christians can't be indifferent to major societal issues like racism or human trafficking or unethical leaders or global issues like war in Ukraine. Okay. In fact, you could argue that there is a direct relationship between our personal, to go back, remember, we're mourning our sin and the sin of this world. You could argue that there is a relationship between our personal contrition or our, our mourning our own sin and our ability to mourn the sin that's in the world, right? We, because we grieve our own sin, which is almost always against another person, we find ourselves having more in common with our community so that we end up taking more steps to make things right in the world around us, Okay? So if you find yourself lacking a sense of mourning and sadness and hurt and frustration about real bad problems and sin in our culture, it's probably because there's something you're not mourning yourself. Well, let's just camp out for a moment on mourning and why this is necessary. Why would Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? Who wants to do that? In the same way that Christians who are poor in spirit continually acknowledge our unworthiness before God, you and I as Christians should be continually mournful of our sin and the sin in this world. It's just always there. It's just always there. If This is, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is so important. We are continually growing in our awareness of God's holiness. 
and we are continually growing in our awareness of the depth of our sin and the sin in this world. And as a result, we're just always carrying around the reality of those two things. And it's sad. We are a sober people. Christians are a, have a sobriety about them. They're, being a Christian is not always joy and laughter. It's just not. I would even, may y'all please be my friend after the sermon, okay? Still be my friend. It is unbiblical to portray the Christian life as something that resembles a Pharrell Williams song. It is ungodly to do that. It's unrealistic. It's, it's, it's plastic banana, good time, rock and roll. It's, it's a lie. It is a lie to portray Christian life as something that is happy if you can. Okay, it's just not, it's just not real. It's not real. There's a ton of happiness. I'm coming to that. Jesus calls it comfort. Blessedness. I'm coming to that. But to portray Christianity as something that evades or escapes mourning is the most un-Jesus-like thing I think you could do. Now, are you in culture shock yet? <laughs> because this is because the philosophy of this world is escape your issues, not deal with your realities. It is not mourn your troubles, it's escape your troubles, it's forget your troubles. I mean, you can almost hear somebody saying, because I, I have heard somebody say, like, this world is bad enough without you Christians going on and all the, talking about it all the time. Why are you always talking about sin? Why are you always talking about need to be rescued and be saved? When we're doing that, we're talking about mourning. We're talking about dealing with the issues in ourselves in this world. If you guys would just have fun, this would all go away. That's the philosophy of this world. To which a Christian would say, because the Bible says... I have come to the realization that God is holy and that I am not, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm not broken and this world's not broken. That's what it means to mourn. Okay? And if you'll do that, you are blessed. Why? Because you get comforted. Okay? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, what comforts us? The gospel. Only a mournful person who grieves over their sin can experience the comfort of Jesus who paid the price for their sin. Only a mournful person who grieves over their sin can rejoice in forgiveness of sin. Only a mournful person who grieves over their unrighteousness can have joy in Jesus' righteousness lived on their behalf and given to them through His death. People who mourn their sin and the sin of this world are blessed people because they are comforted by the gospel. And they are comforted by the fact not just that their sin is forgiven, but that they're given the Spirit to empower them to not sin anymore. Paul says in Galatians verses 5.16, Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful Nature, And he goes on to give a list, by the way. You can overcome adultery. You can overcome idolatry. You can overcome hatred. You can overcome drunkenness. The reason people who mourn their sin are blessed is not just because they get comfort by knowing the gospel, but they get comfort by being empowered by the Holy Spirit who leads them to sin less and live by the Spirit. 
And therefore, you are blessed. And that's not all. It's like an infomercial. You are comforted by the promise. People who mourn their sin and the sin in this world are comforted by the fact that one day Jesus is going to remove all sin and all of its effects forever. You can't take joy in that and be comforted by that if you don't mourn sin to begin with. Do you see how important mourning is? You can't claim the gospel and it, you cannot claim Jesus as a source of comfort and joy if you don't mourn the need for him and what he has done. The day is coming when we will be taken from this world into Jesus' presence. There's going to be no more sin for us to confess because we're going to be just like him. That's 1 John 3. And that is a great comfort to the person who mourns. And therefore, they are blessed. They are blessed. So because of the comfort of the gospel, we are blessed. We're not blessed because we have more money or opportunity, or resources to avoid dealing with our brokenness. I'm the first one to want to escape, gang. I'm the first one. But that's not where the source of blessing lies. And if you try to escape, you will eventually figure that out, right? What is it Jim said this morning, a Will Rogers quote? Where'd he go? Oh, there he is, right. Some people can learn by books, some people can learn from others, and some people have to pee on an electric fence before they figure out, right? Will Rogers, okay? So you can try to escape brokenness in your own, need, your own sin and the sins where you can try and escape, and it could be through a book or through other people or through something a little more inappropriate for the pulpit that I just used. It was a really great Sunday school, though. You can do that, but, if you, but eventually you've, you're going to come to this place where you just have to live with it. It's just there. We care the, the brokenness of this world is just there. And we don't take comfort in escape. We take comfort in the fact that Jesus dealt with it, and he's dealing with it. And that makes us blessed. It makes us blessed. So I want to give you three things to do, okay? Three very practical takeaways. I find them practical. I hope that you find them practical, okay? Number one, just embrace the fact that the Christian state of mind is blessedness in the gospel, not blessed in circumstances or everything else getting, like, physically getting better, okay? You can't be rich in grace and not be poor in spirit. There's no making much of forgiveness and redemption by making light of sin, like, it does, like it's not a problem, right? But that doesn't mean that you are sad, and the Christians don't need to be Eeyore as a dominant state of mind, okay? Because ultimately, we are blessed. On this side of heaven, on this side of uh, the cross, Jesus has resurrected. He's defeated sin once and for all. We have the Holy Spirit empowering us to live. So while we live with the reality of, of mourning our sin and mourning the sin of this world... We are blessed because we are comforted by the gospel. We are comforted by the presence of the Spirit. We are comforted by the promise that He's coming again. And therefore, while we see and feel, we're aware of it, it is not Eeyore Christianity. Okay? We are, we're blessed. We have victory. That's the state of mind. But we have that state of mind because we, 
we have to, we have to deal with that that's there. Okay? The second thing is that we need to be a church, we need to be a people who embrace the blessing associated with mourning. In other words, we need to be a whole gospel church. There are, there are too many alternatives that want to make following Jesus a mere matter of pragmatism and prosperity. That to follow Jesus for a goal other than Jesus himself. And that's not good news. That's a false gospel. There is no comfort in a message from a church that doesn't call you to be poor in spirit and call you to be mournful. We should be mournful for people who go to churches who don't talk about mournfulness. Let's be a whole gospel church, broken for people who don't get the whole gospel, which is a false gospel. And third, lastly, there is a relationship between mourning for our sin and mourning for the sin of this world. That's true. And because that's true, the church needs to be, um, needs to be gospel-centered ministry for real change in this world. <clears throat> we need to be gospel-centered ministers for social change. This church, the church, gospel-centered minister for social change. There is a difference between us and other charities that champion positive social change without Jesus. The difference. We're motivated by the fact that the kingdom of God is near. We're motivated by the fact um, that the kingdom of God is entirely just. We're motivated by the fact that the kingdom of God is entirely right. There's no pain or sorrow associated with any sin in the kingdom of God. That's where our citizenship lies, right? So we're bringing that to bear in the ministry that we do to to, to, to put balm on sin on the social issues of our world. We can't be indifferent and to engage in them and try to fix them with the gospel is a good and right and necessary calling by the church. James Montgomery Boyce, a highly conservative Presbyterian, put it this way. The second beatitude is a call to involvement in the social arena. I quote, in the struggle of blacks for true equality, in the plight of underpaid workers, in the pollution of our natural resources, in education, ethical problems in politics, medicine, business, and other contemporary problems, just as Christians were formerly active in the war against slavery, child labor, lack of freedom of the press, and other forms of immorality, we should mourn these things and we should mourn them deeply enough to do something about them. It motivates our ministry. Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we want to take a moment and acknowledge your holiness, and we want to take a moment to acknowledge our sin and sit in it just for a moment. We are broken people, and this world is broken. Lots of evidence of that everywhere in our own lives and in this world around us. And so we just we sit in it. Because we, we know that it's, it's a blessed thing. Because now we get to go and you forgave us. We get to live in that. You gave us the Spirit. 
to empower us to live over the sin that we personally don't have to do anymore. And you've, you've given us a, a reason and a, and a, and a, and a way and a, and a, and a method and a, and a calling and a burden to make a difference in this world for your glory with the power of the gospel. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, you would, that you would help us get comfortable sitting in this reality of having to work through uh, being uh, poor in spirit and work through mourning so that we can find our comfort and blessing in the gospel and that that would result in an empowered life to make much of you in our own lives and in the lives that we have others that we serve on a global scale, on a global scale. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.